Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, I was not here last week. I was, unfortunately, I needed to fill in. Uh, we had some kind of emergency things pop up amongst our staff and, and staff families, and so I needed to fill in at a different campus last week. But I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be here with you, uh, and I'm excited to begin a brand new series. So over the course of this spring semester, right up until Easter, we are going to be studying the book of James. And James is a letter that was written to early believers that really provided instruction for them in how to live a faithful and fruitful life. Just as we've all been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are also called to live by faith, again, in the completed work of Christ. And so all over the next you know, couple months, we're going to be walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this letter to better understand how the Lord is leading and directing our lives here and now. And one of the things that we're going to see in James chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, so actually if you want to go there in your Bible, if you want to go there on your phone, James chapter 1, we're going to be in the first 12 verses, 1 through 12. Uh, but at what we'll see in this kind of first half of the first chapter of the book of James is really this this command, this charge to believers to change their values in life. What we're going to see is really this, this, this illumination of a truth that God has for us that our victory in trial is very much dependent upon our values in life. And that's true of really all victories, right? Victory is always determined. Victory always depends on the values at hand that you currently hold. Uh, years ago, my wife and I, Susan and I, were flying out of the country. We were, we were waiting on an international flight, leaving the States, going far, far away. And as we were awaiting this flight, what happened was it, the flight that we were on kept getting delayed. And other flights kept getting redirected. And suddenly, even though we thought we had it all in line, even though we thought we had, okay, this like plan and you know, all these timed things out, like it, was, it was all just being thrown in disarray. And it was one of those moments where as we're sitting in the international airport, all the people around us, like you can begin to see the lines get longer right at the help desk. And you begin to see faces get grimmer, right? I think it was even in the evening, so people were already tired. So you knew it was gonna be bad. Conversations got louder and a little more heated as they're talking with each other and like, what do we even have our planes, you know? The conversations with the, 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 the people working for the airlines. And it was just, it was kind of a, it was beginning to be a bit of a hot mess in the area where we're waiting on our flight that just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And in that moment, as my wife and I were sitting down, like not standing in line, we were just, we were like, let's just, let's go sit and contemplate all of our life choices, right? Let's just think about what led us to this moment. As we were sitting there and contemplating all that and, and discussing what was going to happen and what our plans were going to be, my wife turned to me in the midst of that conversation and she was like, well, you know, at least in all of this, we have more time together. I was like... Okay, Mr. Rogers, you know, like, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm buying what you're selling right now. But it really, it was true, and it really was a sweet thought, and it, we really did. I did embrace it. I was like, you know what? You're right. More time together. Like, if you do the math, not really, but in, in a sense, in a sense, it was like, hey, at least we're in this together. And that has actually become a repeated refrain in our marriage, in our family. When, whenever things are starting to go a little chaotic or not according to plan, as maybe things are getting delayed, as we're maybe taking the kids to the Target restroom for the third time in one trip, 
we turn to each other regularly and say, hey, more time together, right? More time together, even if we're maybe at the mall yesterday and going to six different shoe stores to try to find shoes for an eight-year-old girl that apparently is so hard, even in the midst of that, trying on 16 different pairs and then eventually buying the first pair we ever tried on. (laughs) We can turn to each other and we say, more time together, more time together. Why? Because we recognize that what could have been considered a defeat can in fact be seen as a victory as long as our values lead us in that direction. And that's exactly what the Lord is telling believers in James chapter 1, is that as we evaluate the struggle and the trial of life, that we have an opportunity to actually experience joy. We have an opportunity to be more dependent on the Lord in prayer and in asking for his wisdom. Essentially, God is telling us that we have opportunity for victory even in struggle because we have opportunity, or we have that opportunity if we are holding to the values that he himself holds dear. That's what we have. We have an opportunity to take what was seemingly a defeat and to evaluate it as a victory because we value what God values most. We value what's most important. And this is really hard for us at times because our values are always changing. Right? Our values are always in flux. Like, just think across the years. When you're 2 or 12 or 22, your values probably very drastically changed over those years. When you're 2, you're like, I just want a nap, right? You're 12. You just want, I don't know, a phone or something. And then when you're 22, you're back to naps. Like, you just, your values are always shifting. And so the Lord, in his wisdom and his grace, has given us instruction on what to actually value most of how victory is found through his values. And so what we see in James 1, verses 1 through 12, is really three key values that the author is presenting to his audience uh, in an attempt to direct them towards what God values most. It's the value of perspective, of maturity, it's the value of prayer, and it's the value of dependence. And if we hold to these values, what we'll find is that God has promised to show up in power, in might, in strength, and to bring victory where otherwise we might have felt defeat. So if you read with me in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we see that this letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. All right, so James wastes no time. It's a very short introduction, and he's writing this letter, and he quickly introduces himself, and he quickly introduces his audience. So through biblical scholarship, our best understanding is most likely that this James in question was not the disciple James, the apostle James, um, because he actually was most likely martyred very quickly after Jesus left and, and ascended to heaven. But instead, uh, we, our best understanding is that this James is, in fact, the half-brother of Jesus, that he was one of the children born of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. And so James is writing this letter, and he was the, the leader, or a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And so he worked with uh, a lot of Jewish believers, and yet he knew that even though he had all these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, there were a lot of Jewish, you know, so Hebrew-born believers all across the world, dispersed across the empire. And so this letter is meant for all of them, for all these believers scattered across all these different areas of the world. And so he says, I'm writing to you uh, as the half-brother, greetings, right? Greetings to all of you that are scattered, to all of you that are suffering in the midst of all these different areas that that are hostile towards your faith, right? So that's kind of the the undercurrent. He knows that the audience he's writing to is is under oppression, is struggling in different areas of their life. And so he's writing to them, and he begins addressing this high-felt need of suffering in their midst. Read with me in verse 2. He says, my brothers and sisters, so again, my fellow believers, 
Consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So as James begins writing, right, he wastes no time, he jumps right into suffering, right? If someone came to your house for dinner, it's probably not likely that you say, oh, hey, so glad you're here. Where are you struggling? You're like, what's, what's hard right now? Like, that's generally not how we start conversations, but James is not wasting any time. And so he says, hey, greetings, so glad to be, you know, with you guys via this letter, Consider nothing but joy when you face these trials. And when he talks about this consideration of trial, uh, his word is very particular. It's very specific in the Greek. When we, what we translate as consider is more literally evaluate. It says, I want you to evaluate all these trials as, in fact, reason for joy. All joy. This very diverse joy. It says, I want you to consider, I want you to evaluate trial as joy. Why? Because you know that through these trials, this is a testing of your faith, and it produces endurance. And this testing that he talks about, it's not like a pass or fail test of of checking whether or not your faith is real or if it's really there, but instead this word that he uses for testing is more of refining. It's less of proving something, and it's more of perfecting something. And so James is saying you can count it joy, you can consider it, you can evaluate trial as joy because through this trial, God will prove or God will perfect and he will refine your faith and he produces endurance in your life. And then let endurance have its perfect effect, verse four, so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. James says you can value and you can find joy in this trial because it produces endurance. And that endurance leads you towards this perfection, this completeness, this lack of deficiency. Specifically, again, if we were going into the Greek, we'd see that what he's talking about, these ideas of perfection and completeness, it's really, we could also translate it as mature. That you've become, you'll be made mature, you'll be made whole. It says that is what the Lord does through trial. So it's not that James is saying that trial, that, that struggle is good inherently. He's not saying that trials themselves inherently are good. He says, but God will use them for good. That, that God can use the difficulties and the frustrations, the, the, the conflicts of life, the trial of life, he can use it to refine our faith to make it perfect and complete. And this is a refinement of our faith that's not just in the Lord, right? Yes, the Lord will use testing to strengthen our faith and our our, our trust in him. But also, uh, this idea of completion is also kind of moving, is pointing us towards this idea that not only is our faith stronger in the Lord, but our faith is more consistent, that our our faith is more synced up uh, with our life. That, that our faith is better lived out, that we are more uh, you know, complete in that sense, that, that our walk and our talk line up. James is saying God will use trial to do this. And so for us, what, what this means is that we, we need to recognize that, that God is calling us to, to change our viewpoint, right? In other words, to shift our perspective on trial and on suffering and on, on trouble. That's what the Lord is calling us to because he knows that if we are valuing maturity or completeness, if we're valuing perfection, what that's gonna do is it's gonna alter, it's gonna radically transform how we evaluate these, these situations and experiences in life. My wife and I saw this years ago when we were first doing our, our house hunting, right? So about nine years ago, we started looking for a home to purchase here in College Station. 
And when we were doing that, we thought we were pretty ready to like find the, a good house, like, right? We had watched enough HGTV that we were like, we're all set. Like, we know what to look for. We need like granite countertops. We need one of those microwave drawers. Like, what? Microwave in a drawer? It's amazing if you haven't ha- seen one. Uh, it's amazing. And I was like, I got that's a That's a must, right? That's the top of the list. Like, I don't know what else would even go above that. But thankfully, as we began to look at homes, we had a realtor who we knew and trusted who thankfully trained us in what to actually look for. She radically transformed our evaluation process, and she taught us that that the things that we were looking at were really kind of these surface-level issues that we could change uh, on our own after we purchased a home. But instead of looking at kind of these surface-level things or items or, or, you know, style choices, that what we needed to be looking for were like the skeleton of the home, right? We wanted something that was solid, that was reliable. We wanted to be able to look at a foundation and not see cracks, right? Like that, that was the goal. And suddenly as she instructed us and trained us in how to evaluate our value or in what to value, our evaluation dramatically changed. And suddenly the houses that we were initially attracted to, to uh, were trouble. Like we were like, oh man, like, yeah, those countertops are great, but is that a crack I see in the foundation on the outside? Oh, is that masonry kind of crack? Oh, you know, and suddenly... Houses that we thought were awesome were, were pushed aside, whereas other homes we were more impressed with. We are like, oh, yeah, tell me more about these pipes, you know? Like, oh, yeah, steel? I don't know what pipes are made of, you know, but that's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a good pipe, right? And suddenly our evaluation changed because our values were different. Our values were actually better. And so the same holds true for us as believers, that God wants to change our values. He wants us to recognize that maturity is actually his goal for our life. God's goal for our life is not comfort. If that was God's goal for our life, we would, have to, we would look at our lives and we would say, wow, God is really missing the mark a lot. Because we would see a lot of areas of our lives that are very uncomfortable, But rather than seeking comfort, rather than that being God's goal or highest value for our lives, God's value for us is actually our maturity. It's our growth. It's our transformation into becoming more like his son, Jesus Christ. It's the process that we call sanctification, that we are saved by the work of God, right? God has worked for us in providing salvation through Jesus Christ, but God also works in us through this process of sanctification where we die more unto sin and live more unto righteousness. And this is all for the goal of God working then not just for us or in us, but for God will work through us as we serve him and as we live lives according to his will, something we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But, but the Lord is wanting us to recognize, James is trying to tell all believers that God's value is maybe different than ours. That God's value and his goal for us is maturity. It's not comfort. It's not comfort. That many times when we look at a tough situation, we might be asking for or looking for a way out. But more often than not, rather than giving us a way out, God gives us a way through. And he promises to be with us and to guide us and to instruct us and strengthen us. But it's not escape. It's not an escape. Instead, it's an opportunity to endure. And so for us, as believers, what we should be pursuing is maturity. We pursue maturity over escape. Just as my wife and I, as our perspective changed in what was most valuable in a home, that perspective shift dramatically changed what we were, dramatically changed what we were pursuing. In the same way for us as believers, if we know that God values our maturity and and our growth, that should change what we pursue in the trial and tribulation of life. 
So maybe we have, even right now, right now we might have difficulty in different areas of our life. We might feel a lot of pressure or burden when it comes to our finances, our financial state, or maybe it's with our coursework, maybe we're students, or maybe it's in parenting, or maybe it's in relationships, and maybe it's in the responsibilities we have at work or, or outside of work. Like we maybe feel pressure and we might feel some struggle and some testing taking place. And I know that many of us, myself included, our, our natural instinct is to look for that way out, to think like, well, what if I just like, stop doing it? Like, what if I just stop, you know, serving in that area? Or what if I just, you know, hand that project off to someone else? What if I could just, you know, find a way to get out of, out from under this pressure that I feel? But, but what the Lord is telling us is that that's not actually his goal. That yes, there are times where God provides escape, but what the, actually what scripture tells us is when the Lord gives us escape, generally that escape comes in the face of temptation. He gives us ways to escape sin, he doesn't give us ways to escape struggle because he will use that struggle. He uses that strife to refine us, to perfect us, to make us mature, to grow in our, in our image of being more in line with him. So that, that's, that's the charge, and it's a high charge. It's a high challenge. And James knows this. Even as he tells us to believers, he knows that this is really difficult. And that's why I think he immediately moves into the second value. Not just the value of maturity, not just the value of having the perspective of the Lord, but it's the value of prayer. All right, read with me in verse 5. He says that, But if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him. Now, sometimes we use this verse out of context and we think like, oh, yeah, if, if you don't know what to do, uh, you know, with your parenting stuff, you don't know what to do as a sibling or you don't know what to do, you know, as an a economist or whatever, I don't know. Like if you, if you are lacking in like knowledge or wisdom in any area of life, that's what you should take to the Lord. And that is true that the Lord does tell us, especially in Proverbs, how he's always ready to give us wisdom. Wisdom being specifically skillful living, right? That's what, when we talk about biblical wisdom, it's this idea of navigating life skillfully, navigating life well. And yes, it is true. God is always offering us this general wisdom. In fact, in Proverbs, he describes it as a woman screaming on a street corner. That's how he personifies wisdom, that God is always ready to offer us wisdom. But here... In context, we know what James is actually talking about specifically is wisdom in trial. It's wisdom in testing. It's wisdom in struggle. And so James is saying if anyone is deficient, if you're lacking in how to skillfully navigate struggle, right, which of course we all do, especially if we're trying to navigate struggle in a way that, that brings perfection and refinement, he says then what you should do is you don't just like do better. He says you should ask God. It doesn't say go, you know, go to a seminar or like go download this podcast series. Like, again, those things are good, but really what James is reminding believers of is our ultimate source of wisdom of being able to skillfully navigate situations, especially difficult situations of struggle and trial. He says it's the Lord himself. So ask him, and he is ready to give generously without reprimand. He's not like, oh, you need a little bit more wisdom. <laughs> All right, well, one more star off your board, you know, or whatever. Like, that's not what he's doing. God is standing ready to give us wisdom and instruction where we are lacking. James says we should be ready. We should be constantly going to the Lord in prayer, asking him for this wisdom. But, verse 6, he says he must ask in faith without doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. So James gives a very important kind of condition to this asking of the Lord for wisdom. He says you should be asking in full faith, not doubting. And when he talks about doubt, it's not an idea, it's not that he's saying that that we're doubting whether or not God is real. It's more of a doubting of whether or not God is reliable. It's essentially, he's describing this person, that's why he goes and talking about this person who's double-minded. Literally, in the Greek, it's someone who's split in his soul. He says, you shouldn't be this person who's basically got one foot in and one foot out. It's not necessarily that you're doubting that God is real. It's you're doubting whether or not he's reliable. It's a person who is essentially hedging his bet in case God's way isn't actually best. It says, don't be the person who goes to the Lord asking God for wisdom, and then when you receive it, to be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll put that on the board of considerations, right? And I'm going to weigh the Lord's will. I'm going to weigh the Lord's direction, you know, compared to this other person's or this other thing, you know, or my personal desires or, or you know, my personal thoughts, it says, don't be like that. Don't be divided in that sense. It says, you should ask the Lord for wisdom and be able to commit yourself to trust and follow whatever the Lord reveals, however the Lord directs. It says, be a person who is single-minded in that sense. Not double-minded, but a person who's single-minded saying, I'm gonna trust that God's way is truly best. And then that's something that should be reflected in our prayer because our prayers, they always reveal our priorities. When I was heading into Texas A&M University uh, as a freshman, I, I had this moment where the Lord really just shook me like to my very core. And it was this moment where I was at an at a incoming freshman camp thing called Impact. That's whoop, so great. And I was, while I was at Impact, the Lord really just in this kind of worship time, I just, I just felt this burden from the Lord to consider something. I didn't know what. And so I sat in the midst of this worship set and I began to pray to the Lord. And I realized in that time of prayer that, that I had never really actually taken to the Lord my desires or my direction for college. That even though I was going in with a really great plan, I was going to you know, be in accounting and I was going to go and become a professor and I was going to do all this great stuff. Like that was my, that was my, my in my mind, that was kind of the, the point on the horizon that I was chasing. And yet I realized in that moment at Impact that I'd never actually even held that up to the Lord and asked him for his wisdom, asked him for his direction. And so in that moment, I did that. I I said, God, okay, well, I want to actually go where you would have me go. Like that was the realization. That was kind of the commitment I had to come to in this sort of internal conflict with the Lord. I had to realize, okay, I want to go wherever God wants me to go. Like that's what's best is that I would be where God wants me to be, that I would do what God would want me to do. That's what I want to do. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to head. And it was in that moment, it was after that realization, that the Lord called me to ministry. A story that I've told before, won't go into details right now, but, but that's one of the reasons I love talking with young people about calling and ministry. Because it was something that I felt, it was something I experienced very really, like something very dramatic in my life that really highly just wrecked all of my plans. And yet, even though it had wrecked these early preconceptions and these plans that I had for college, what it was, was it was perfectly in line with the right plan. It was perfectly in line with my commitment to being where the Lord would have me be and going where the Lord would have me go. 
And so the Lord says, I, I want you to come to me for wisdom. I want you to come to me for direction. I realized as an 18-year-old that I wasn't ready to take my next step until I sat still before my God. And that is still true for all of us. It's true for all of us in every situation, in every aspect of life. And yet it's difficult for us to commit to this because we so often value reaction over reflection. We want to move. We want to make decisions. We want to, we want to you know, react to the situation and we want to you know, make these quick calls without ever actually pausing and taking them before the Lord. It takes time and discipline to be still before the Lord, to reflect on what he desires for our lives. And that's really difficult. I see this play out all the time with my kids. My wife and I have three little kids, ages six, or eight, almost six, and almost four. And I'll tell you that when conflict shows up, when, when difficulty shows up in our home, especially between our children, more often than not, the, the, the wrong choices that happen are, are choices that are made in the heat of the moment. And so what my wife and I have learned to really try to instill in our children is as conflict occurs or as disappointment hits, as expectations are missed, the repeated refrain in our home is, take, just take a breath. Just take a breath. Let's slow down, take a deep breath. And then let's talk about how you should have responded when your brother kicked you in the head, right? Like that was, that was wrong for him to do. I'm not saying he was right, but I'm saying you then kicking him in the head was not good. Like we need to slow down. But it's hard because we want to just react. We want to have that knee-jerk reaction. Some of us really pride ourselves and like, oh, I make these really great calls in the moment. And that might be true more often than not. But the Lord is not calling us to live a reactionary life. God is calling us to live a reflective and discerning life that's lived according to his wisdom and direction. And so for all of us, there's probably situations right now in our family, in our work, in our interests, in our relationships, where maybe all of us need to just... Take a breath. Be still before the Lord. And to pursue his wisdom over maybe the affirmation that we really just desire. I saw this all the time when I was working in college ministry. Is I would have students come and talk to me and ask about maybe it's, you know, life direction. It could have, a lot of, more often than not, it was in like dating and relationships. And they would explain to me a situation. They'd be like, so what do you think, like, about this, you know, relationship? And they described this relationship thing to me. And, like, like even as they described it, I'm like, this thing is bad. You don't need to be together. Like, you need to give this up. Like, this is toxic. This is wrong. And I would tell them that. They'd be like, so what do you think about? And I'd be like, this is bad. This is toxic. You need to get out. Like, da, da, da. And I can't tell you how many times I would give that direction. I would offer that advice. And then immediately just their eyes would just, glaze over. And then eventually I would stop saying the thing they didn't want to hear. And then they'd be like, okay, cool. So anyway, I'm going to talk with my dad. So um, I got to go. You know, and they so often, and this is true of all of us, right? This isn't just people that are 18 to 22. This is all of us. There are many times where we find ourselves really desiring, really, if we're honest, just sort of affirmation, self-confirmation over what is right and what is best, we want someone to just sort of applaud us or pat us on the back and be like, you know what, you're right. He didn't deserve to be forgiven that time because he wronged you too much before that. We, we want to be told like, oh, you know what, yeah, you, you should have like been, gotten upset because that, that was a really big, you know, or you know what, you, you should have made that decision. You should have moved fast and not like paused and, and asked for advice because you know what, you, you always make good decisions. Like we, we, there's a part of us that wants that affirmation when the reality is we need wisdom. 
And so we need to be still before the Lord, whether that's in a time of, of prayer to him, a discipline to really just be still to the Lord and, and bring to him our, our issues, our, our concerns, our requests. Maybe it's a time where we aren't just still in, in prayer with our God, but it's a time where we are studying his word. We're actually reading the wisdom that he's given us in scripture. There's a lot of areas of life where we might feel dazed and confused. We might feel lost, and we feel like we're scrambling when God is standing ready with wisdom in his word that he's told us about. And so we need to be still before him in prayer and study of his word. We need to be still many times in community. This is one of the reasons that we talk about community here so often. It's the reason that we always, you know, try to highlight the opportunity for you to be in a small group, to be in a circle, not just in rows, but in a circle with other people who can know you, who can encourage you, and who can challenge you, who the Lord can speak through and offer wisdom and guidance. Not that everyone in your small group is going to be perfect or have all the right answers, but it's pretty amazing to read through scripture and to see how often the Lord does use his people to guide his people. How often the Lord actually does speak through community, through the diversity of his body, that, that through this kind of, you know, the shared responsibility that he gives us the best direction. He gives us wisdom through one another. It's important for us to be still before the Lord in, in, in all of those ways. And it's really once we embrace and commit ourselves to the value of prayer that then we are fueled and enabled to embrace this value of dependence, this very similar value of dependence. This is how James kind of closes this section, starting in verse 9. He says that now the believer of humble means should take pride in his high position, but the rich person's pride should be in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a wildflower in the meadow. For the sun rises with its heat and dries up the meadow, and the petal of the flower falls off, and its beauty is lost forever. So also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will wither away. But happy is the one who endures testing, because when he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. So essentially, James really closes out this initial charge, these first few values of perspective, of maturity, this value of prayer. He really closes it almost with an example, almost with like a real-world example. He says that, look, in your midst, in the body, he says there's going to be some who have a lot, and there's going to be some who don't have much. Right? Specifically, he's talking, this is the rich man and the poor man. So he's talking specifically about financial resources. He says, but here's the thing. If you... Are, don't have those financial resources, says you can still take great pride in your position in Christ, right? Your pride, your, your sense of self-worth isn't in that bank account. It's in the fact that you've been adopted into the family of God. He says in the same way, if the rich person, he says that rich person is a fool, is, is wrong if their pride is wrapped up in the wealth and the things that they've amassed in this world. Why? Because those things, those worldly pursuits, he says they just wither away, like a little wildflower in a meadow under the heat of the sun. Does it all is just going to wither away? So two different believers, two different stages of life, but, but they're both united in their faith in Christ. He says, and for both of you, in this unity under Christ, says you should both commit yourself to this correct kind of heavenly perspective, this dependence upon the Lord for his affirmation, for, for his reward, 
right? He says, that's why he says, blessed or happy is the one who endures this testing, right? So he's going full circle. He says, you, should, you can have joy as you experience testing because it produces endurance. He says, and the reason that you can be joyful, the reason you can be happy and blessed through that endurance is because through that testing, through that refinement, he says, God then rewards those who persevere. He rewards those who endure. In other words, what we see is this promise of eternal reward from the Lord for the life that is well lived. That's what God promises. But James is clear in this passage, he's going to be clear through the rest of the letter, that that our ability to endure, our ability to, to stay on the path that God has set before us, it is all entirely us depending on God to keep us in that place, to keep us on that path. Right? He says, that's why he says you should let endurance have its full effect. He says you, you're allowing the Lord to work. You're, you're trusting a power outside of yourself. You're trusting him, not yourself. It's not self-reliance. It's reliance upon the Lord. But that's so hard because so often we find ourselves valuing, rather than dependence or reliance upon the Lord, we just value getting the right result or the result that we want and the timing that we want. I see this all the time where our youngest, who's almost four, he has this, he, he knows how to put his shoes on. Okay, let me just set the foundation. He knows how to put his shoes on, and that's really great. We've taught him, we've instructed him, we've raised him in the ways of the Lord and of shoe putting on this. Like that's, that's one of our, you know, I'd seen marks of achievement as parents. But still, to this day, what happens is many times as he's putting his shoes on, as we tell him like, hey, buddy, go put your shoes on. He goes and puts them on, and he'll come out, and he'll be ready to go, but his shoes are on the wrong feet, right? It's tricky. It's really tricky. Like, left and right, it's hard. Um, but the shoes are on the wrong feet. And shoes, as you know, are generally designed to be on a certain foot, right? Like, there's, like, a specific curve to it, like the laces, maybe even, like, your Velcro strap. Like, is, you know, it's, it's, it's very, like, obvious, and there's, it's very intentional which shoe goes on which foot. And so when my son comes to me and he's like, okay, ready to go, or like, you know, we're, maybe we're already been playing for like an hour, and then I suddenly notice, I'm like, wait, buddy, your shoes are on the wrong feet. So many times, what he will do is he will tell, I'll say, hey, but let, let me sit you down, let's get your shoes on the right feet. He's like, no, 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 it's, it's better this way. <laughs> That's what he has told me verbatim, like three times in the last week. It's better this way. And then I say, no, it's not. <laughs> and I bring out my charts and my graphs and Dr. Scholl's, and I'm like, look, no. <laughs> like, your shoes are meant for specific feet. But he doesn't want to pause. Like, he doesn't want to reflect. He doesn't want to change what he's already done. He doesn't want to rely on me. He's like, I got it. I got it. I'm like, hey, let, me put you, let me help you get your, feet on the, your shoes on the right feet. No, no, I got it. I got it. I, they're better this way. And that, that's his go-to. And that's something that I see in myself. That's something that we still will lean towards, even as adults, as we, we so often maybe are making a decision, we're navigating a difficult circumstance, and we think, you know what, I'm just going to like make the call, I'm just going to do this thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, because I want this certain result, or I want it in a certain amount of time. And the Lord, again, is standing, ready to offer direction. He's ready to stand, offering wisdom. And yet so often we're like, no, 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 I don't need it, I don't need it. I got it. It's better this way. God's looking at our shoes on the wrong feet. He's like, it's not. It's really, really not. So if we value reliance upon the Lord, if we recognize that God values our dependence, then it should change what we pursue. It changes us not just pursuing the right result in the right time that we want, that aligns with our expectations or our desires, 
But instead, it's a recognition that, hey, I want to pursue dependence. I want to strengthen my ability to trust in the Lord. And I'll tell you that this is, there are opportunities for this all over the place, right? And all the situations we've already described, finances, relationships, responsibilities, work, school, family. We, we have opportunities in all of these situations to depend upon the Lord, to be still before him, to, to hold fast to those values we already talked about. And I'll say another area where the Lord really, I think, drills this into us, where he really stretches us in our reliance and dependence upon him is when we are willing to serve him in maybe new ways. That's one of the reasons that we've talked over the last couple of weeks about serving here in our church, serving here at Southwood in particular, serving even on Sundays. It's one of the reasons that we've put this code up. I'm putting it up again. It's one of the reasons that we've talked about this. It's not because we, wanna, we have a roster that we need to fill out or, you know, boxes we need to check. It's because we recognize, I recognize over years of ministry and life experience that one of the best ways that we can open ourselves up to the Lord teaching us dependence and reliance is when we serve him. It's when we sacrifice some time or some energy, some resources for his sake. Maybe in a way that we've never served before. God uses those. Those are prime windows for the Lord to teach us reliance and dependence upon himself. That's why we talk about it. That's why we're going to get the ball rolling on this this week. If you've already signed up, thank you. But this is one of the reasons we're, we're getting the ball rolling on this, because we know that this is how the Lord teaches us dependence and reliance upon himself. Because that's what God values. And so for all of us, we have opportunity, right? We have opportunity to grow. I don't think anyone can read James 1, 1 through 12, or really the rest of the letter either. either. But no one can read James 1, 1 through 12 and be like, got it. <laughs> like, nailing it. Like, this is, this is difficult. This is challenging. And it's why I, I hope that, that of all the values we talked about, that the one of prayer really hits home. That it's one that we hold to really quickly, really fast. So as we close this morning, we're going to sing... Again, to the Lord, we're going to sing one more song. We're, we're going to hear a little bit about what's coming up, uh, a few things that are coming up here at Southwood. But before we even get into that, my hope, my prayer is that we would spend some time taking these concerns to the Lord, asking him for his direction, for his wisdom, that we would be still right here, right now, and ask him to offer that wisdom, to change our values. So if you would, join me in prayer. God, we thank you that you've given us instruction in how to live, God, and how to withstand trial, Lord, and how to find victory where there otherwise was seemingly defeat. And so, God, we pray that you would radically alter our values. That, God, that we would value what matters most, that we would value what you yourself value. And that, God, as our perspective shifts in that way, that, Lord, you would use the, the difficulties that we're in or we're, we just came out of or we're about to face, that, God, you would use them to refine us or to draw us closer to yourself. And so if you would, take this moment and, and ask the Lord for direction and maybe one of those three values that we already talked about. Ask the Lord, say, God, I, I need your power, I need your strength to, to change my value of, of maturity. God, I, I need you to, to give me this perspective of joy in the midst of trial. Or maybe you ask the Lord, say, God, I, I need you uh, to give me the motivation and the discipline to come to you more regularly in prayer. 
God, to be still before you, reflective of, of, and, and responsive to your wisdom, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in study of your word, whether it's in sitting with community. Or maybe you ask the Lord and you say, God, I, I need your direction. I need your strength. I need your wisdom when it comes to depending and relying upon you alone. God, of not being double-minded, of not putting my hope or my pride in, in the things that I can accomplish, but instead, Lord, in trusting in you. Take this moment in the still and quiet to ask the Lord for that direction, to ask him for that wisdom that he's ready to generously give to every single one of us. Ask him for that now.